Welcome to the Leadership Trap Podcast, recorded live here in Austin, Texas. In this podcast, we explore the conditions that lead to surviving and thriving in a successful leadership role. We examine the traps that can cause leaders to stumble, bumble, or get ambushed in ways that may or may not be of their own making. I'm Dr. Chris Petrovka, and with David Hewen of Austin WorkNet, we have a conversation with each leader that explores the traps that they have encountered through their leadership journey. Hopefully it brings a new perspective to your role as a leader and helps you navigate your own way through the traps. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump into the trap. Hey, David, we had a great conversation with Manoj Saxena, where we covered a lot of traps from his time as a CEO and all of his work with the startups. How did you meet Manoj? Yeah, I'm glad he could break away and spend time. This is a busy guy, and he's had quite the life. Um, He's a serial entrepreneur. We met over 20 years ago. He had come out of corporate. 3M was his prior large corporate experience before he founded his first company, ExtraPrize. And I came out of corporate to help run human resources for him. So he was uh, the introduction for me into the startup world over 20 years ago. And we grew that company, built out uh, an executive team and just a great team in general. Uh, He is a charismatic guy, as you came to know in the time we spent with him. And uh, he knows how to he knows how to sell a solution. And he did. And we uh, attracted a lot of uh, high impact investors. And, and clearly, he showed the might and the strength it takes to um, build out companies. So ExtraPrize led to uh, Webify, which led to a stint in which he was running the Watson project at IBM. IBM acquired Webify, one of his startups. So uh, he made a corporate run. I think he said for seven years, he mentions it again, I believe in our um, time with him. But nevertheless, uh, Manoj Saxena currently is doing a number of things. He uh, co-founded an artificial intelligence company. Uh, He's really interested in the ethics behind Uh, artificial intelligence. Um, And then there are a number of other things he's interested in that we couldn't even touch upon, but um, he is uh, a a well-versed, wise leader who learned through a number of traps along the way, uh, and he shares some of those with us. Well, a few things that really jumped out for me in this episode in particular was um, the wisdom and advice from his mom, first of all. I thought was really, really, really good. And, you know, he was very genuine as he talked about female leadership. And I really appreciated his insights into the importance of of female leadership and what the women bring to leadership roles. And I think too, he used the term, um, he referred to himself as a serial enabler. And Mm -hmm. that struck a chord with me and how important that is and being an advocate for others. And then, you know, the the last piece that um, I, I carried away and I'm thinking about now and the work that I do with others is the concept around focus, alignment, and follow through and what that means as a leader. So a few things that I hope our listeners also take away among many, many great subjects we talked about, but that that stuck out for me. Super impressive guy. So let's get right into the trap. So uh, we'll hear more from Mano Saxena. All right, we're excited to be here for another edition of the Leadership Trap Podcast, and I'm excited to welcome uh, Manoj. Thank you for joining today's episode. 
Thank you, Chris and David, for having me. Great uh, to have you here for the uh, the podcast. We go back more than 20 years. And because this is a podcast, as far as our listeners are concerned, uh, both you and I have very full heads of hair. And we really haven't changed a bit in the past uh, 20 years. No, I'm afraid that's not the case. My picture's <laughs> on our website. Damn it. They can easily be able to hide verify that. that. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to uh, scratch that. Um, so, Manoj, considering your more recent work, I'm curious to get a sense from you as to where you think artificial intelligence could fundamentally change leadership, no matter the industry. What's your sense of uh, how AI is going to have an impact on how leadership gets done? It's the billion dollar question. That's a fantastic question. And frankly, no one's asked me that so far. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I really think, um, you know, AI is one of those foundational capabilities like electricity uh, or, or internet and then try being a leader today with a company with no power and no internet. <laughs> so AI is going to be one of those foundational technologies that is going to shape uh, the way we learn, the way we lead and the way we live. So I do think that future generation, I remember actually when I was graduating, this is like 20, 30, 30 years ago almost, I used to proudly put in my resume that I know Microsoft PowerPoint, Microsoft <laughs> Excel and DB4. Uh, and I think, you know, in another few years, um, leaders will be actually be doing something similar. They will be saying that I know how to put AI to work for transforming an organization. So I think it's going to be a very foundational capabilities for leaders to um, both, I think, um, put AI to work for business competitiveness in terms of how they build products, how they go to market. Uh, and in terms of how they identify, recruit, and engage their employees, which is an incredibly important part of being a leader. So AI is going to help them with that. Uh, it's also going to help them uh, do an incredibly important part of being a leader, which is being more self-aware and, 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 and evolving with time. So I think AI is going to actually serve as a coach. I mean, David, you've been my coach many times, continue to be now. But I think we're going to be augmented um, with AI as an additional coach. And um, last but not the least, I think AI is going to create uh, for leaders an incredible opportunity to start shaping uh, the civic and the social, the social contract and social impact that they can have and their company can have. So all aspects of leadership uh, is going to be shaped and accelerated by AI. I would yeah, think well, that, go ahead, Chris. I was just going to jump in because I think, yeah, I'm fascinated by it, especially because my, my wife is in love with robots. So she's, she's all in on you yeah. know, anything we can do. Uh, I'm curious about the speed. You mentioned that becoming more self-aware. And for me, that prompts the idea of the speed in which you become self-aware will accelerate tremendously, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so one of my mentors is uh, Ginny Rometty, the former CEO of IBM, and learned a lot of things from her. One of the things she always said was growth and comfort don't coexist. <laughs> um, and I think I've always taken that to heart. And I think one of the important things as a leader um, is the importance of continuing to learn, continuing to evolve. And I think uh, we have the benefit now of digital networks and the power of the internet in the palm of your hand and chatbots and robots all around us. So if we know how to engage, we can really start both learning as well as communicating at scale. 
And I think AI is going to help us, like podcasts like these. You know, 10 years ago, this was impossible to create something like this without $5,000 into it at a minimum and five hours of prep. So I do believe that um, in terms of expanding our senses, both in terms of how we receive as well as how we communicate, uh, AI is going to have a very foundational sort of and, and transformational impact. You know, I'm interested since you mentioned a mentor that uh, has been influential in your life. That's one of the things that I uh, respect about you is that even with your level of success and the level of roles that you've held, you still found mentors along the way. Tell us a bit about why that's important and how you'll go about finding mentors uh, that it, you feel best aligned to where you are uh, in your passage uh, uh, professionally. Well, thanks for the compliment, first of all. I think that I, I definitely believe that you never stop learning. You never stop learning till you leave this earth because there is so much to know. I mean, there was that was the famous saying, the more I know, the less, uh, the more I learn, the less I know. Um, so I think that's a very true um, uh, concept is the more I understand, the, the more I realize how little I know about things. And to me, one of the incredibly important part of uh, being a leader or being a human actually is being able to actively put yourself into the zone of learning new things, um, and not just technologically, but also about your own self, about society, about employees. I mean, the way you engage employees is dramatically different than how it was when I did my first startup 25 years ago. What employees expect of the companies is dramatically different. So if I had not evolved and if I had stayed in that same stage, I probably would be looking at you know, two people instead of 200 people in some of my companies because people just want to be treated and engaged differently. And in terms of my own journey and my own process, it helps uh, coming from a culture uh, like I do from India where in fact the whole philosophy in India is teachers are more important to you than your parents are because parents are just the ones who give you birth. Teachers are the ones who get you ready for life. So there is that deep sense of um, admiration and respect for people who are senior and elder to you that you can learn from. And that's, that's ingrained in the culture and the upbringing. And second part is I've had the incredible uh, fortune of coming across some amazing leaders uh, more of them, by the way, tended to be women than men that I've learned because I believe that, and this is another topic we can discuss, I believe women make much better leaders than men because they can balance the head and the heart much better than men do. And um, and I've had through my roles at um, 3M or you know running the two startups or being at IBM or now being a venture capitalist, I've come across some incredible people. And um, I tend to listen a lot to these people. And then the way you get the membership, mentorship from them is you just have to ask. You, you realize that people love helping people. And all you have to do is reach out and say, hey, may I just take 15 minutes or 30 minutes of your time when I'm struggling with an issue, would you be open to doing it? And um, uh, you know, and again, in the context of another strong woman, my, my mother used to say that you have, God has given you two ears and one mouth for a reason. You're supposed to listen twice as much as you speak. And, uh, and again, that's another thing that I have kept close to myself. And uh, so when you start listening and when you start reaching out to people and say, and you're trying being honest, I think radical honesty is another important thing that leaders have to have. To be able to say, I don't know, but let me go find that out. And so that way I've had some tremendous success in having people who are not just older than me. They're, they're younger people that teach me. I mean. 
Ashley Casavan, who's the executive director of AI Global, she's you know, a millennial. I learn from her. I reach out to her and ask questions. So I think it's all around us. It's just a matter of reaching out and asking for it. Hmm. I, I want to follow up and you're right, you did bring up a comment, right? That difference between the men and women leadership. And you knew we were gonna follow up on that, right? <laughs> it's like, that's a great comment, but I, I don't, I don't wanna let it go for a moment. And rather than ask you what makes your leaders or female leaders possibly better, what do you see as it in men that holds them back? What is it the piece there that says, well, they're not quite as good? Well, you know, I don't know if I can speak for all men, but I can speak about myself. And I know how limited I was growing through my own journey as I continue to as a leader. And it's this notion of balancing IQ and EQ. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think uh, we are dialed in a lot more around, um, you know, your IQ as a metric for a leader, around your uh, aggressiveness. And, you know, men want to tend to wash down the floor with testosterone. And uh, women, I think, tend to take a lot more of a holistic picture that balances, I call it the head and the heart and the wallet. Uh, Men tend to skip from the head to the wallet pretty quickly. (laughs) And uh, one of the most important things, the roles of leadership is the ability to lead with integrity and lead with compassion. And if you're not able to dial into this, um, you're gonna struggle, you know, becoming a better leader. Uh, I can give you a story of, I don't have, I don't think we'll have the time, but at some other time, I'll give you this of Ann Mason. When I was a manager at 3M, Ann was in her 40s. I was in my 20s leading her. And um, one of the things I did, a stupid thing, you know, she had a baby in that age when she came back and I went straight to a task list. I said, here's kind of the seven things to do. She came back and she just riddled me with bullets after that. And she said, you're such a smart guy, but guess what? You're not going to make a great leader because you're not an empathetic guy. Mm-hmm. I, here I am back from maternity leave after four months. You're not even once to ask me to look at the picture of my baby, how my baby is doing, and you go straight to your task list. So I look at Anne, and one of the biggest gifts she gave me was she came back and told me about those things, things that come instinctively to women. And uh, I think that's what makes them uh, much better and stronger leaders um, uh, than men. They know how to bring a group together and balance all the parts. You fell into quite a leadership trap. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. So along those lines, not necessarily the gender consideration, but the learning along the way factor, what would the Manoj of today tell the CEO Manoj of 21 years ago? What would you be advising, mentoring that Manoj of 21 plus years ago that I first met? Wow, so many things. I mean, we can spend an hour just talking about <laughs> all the all the mistakes I made and all the lessons and the scar tissues that I've learned. I think I think at the end of the day, I would probably net it down to four or five things. Number one, I think is understanding and realizing that leadership is about loving the people that you lead. It's truly about caring for who you lead, who have trusted to be a part of the journey. So really, it's about people. You know, it, it's an honor to be able to lead um, a group of people who have particularly with the startups that I do, because startups is an act of faith. You're going across the journey and you don't know whether you're going to make it across the desert or not. And um, so understanding that the goal of a leader is not just getting across the desert. It's about taking care of the people on that journey. That's number one. And I think uh, I had the sequence wrong. To me, it was more about, hey, let's get through it, power through it. and uh, so that's one part, the, the human part. 
Second well, part, did, I would... didn't you? If I could just interrupt for a second, yeah. didn't you think that um, that they just or you assume they share the same amount of exactly. believership that you had, and exactly. to some degree, because yeah. you were so compelling, Manoj, yes. people who haven't met you um, soon enough, once they do meet you, realize, boy, this guy is so uh, engaging and compelling and smart. I'll follow this guy. And then if it's combined with, I really believe in what we're doing, we are going to change the world. And and you had a convincing story. So yeah. those early arrivers were high believers. They were. And by the way, that's, that's a very important point because there are inflection points in a company. When you are 15 people versus 50 people versus 200 people, the, the model of leadership, what was your strength the night before becomes your weakness the next day. So understanding when that inflection point and how the leadership style have to change, I think, Again, it's about people, how you engage and what you assume about people. Um, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is leadership is a lot about followership. It is not just about leader as a pioneer, but it's also about leader as a servant. So knowing when to be in the front and knowing when to be in the back and, and lead from behind versus lead from front. My model in the beginning was go, go, go. Um, I am here, come on now. And there are now times where I look back and say, that assumes that I know what I'm doing and the direction that I'm going. There's an arrogance in there. And, and you got to be able to say, in some cases, I'm going to go slower. I'm going to let these guys figure out uh, what it is. I know there is, again, there's another African saying which says, if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go with a group of people. So when you go with a group of people, it's not just about running ahead of the pack, but also knowing how. You can serve them from behind and then have them kind of pull you along. That, that's the second part. And I think the other part I would say is this, this notion of being able to not equate leadership with power, but leadership with influence, right? Uh, I think this notion of, well, you're going to do it because I said so versus I'm going to lead through asking questions rather than lead through telling things. So the younger Manoj, was very used to leading by telling people what to do. And now I think I'm more in that phase of asking questions and guiding them to that point. So those are sort of some of the big things. I mean, there are many more, um, but those are, I think, more the traps uh, that we can discuss later on, that there's about half a dozen things that I look back that I fell into those traps. But those are some of the top four or five, I think, lessons that I would share to the younger, with the younger Manoj. It resonates a lot with um, oftentimes when I'm working with leaders, I will ask them, are you looking for compliance or commitment? There you go. Yeah. Big, yeah. big difference. And big I, difference. I think it also fits, right? So you want to go far or you want to go fast? You want to go fast and just get everybody to comply. Yeah. You said earn that commitment. Yeah. So talk a bit about how CEOs impact company culture. Well, I think um, you know one of the most important roles of a CEO is demonstrating the right behaviors and beliefs that creates a positive culture. At the end of the day, culture and strategy are two very uh, misunderstood words. I mean, it's not culture cannot be built. Culture cannot be actively managed. At the end of the day, what is culture? Culture is a set of beliefs and actions. And a leader's beliefs and the leader's actions is what creates the culture. At the heart, that's what culture is. And I think to me, uh, being very aware, it again goes back into awareness. 
being very very aware of what is the what do you believe in being very aware of what are the actions that you are you um again the the younger manoj would have been sending emails at 2 a.m. on a saturday morning uh the the older manoj today pauses and uses google mail schedule option to send it on monday at 10:30 a.m. because it cascades down in people's lives on a weekend so i'm impacting the culture where i'm expecting them to work on weekends when it's not a healthy thing right so i think uh, the both these notions of beliefs and actions is what sets culture and ceos need to be incredibly aware of that and uh, one of the things and david you remember this perhaps every company i do i always have this first document that i write which is a social contract uh, contract why should anyone care that we are starting this company and why do we exist in my first company extraprise i used to have a picture in my office of the golden spike you know in saint uh, in, in uh, saint joseph missouri where both the trains met and then they connected the two train tracks there was a picture that i always kept in my office and it was about a lot of these you know railroad barons and all there's a lot of chinese people you know with that hat of theirs and their shovels in their hand and and this is 1999 2000 the internet was just coming about and my first startup was building a business on top of the internet and i used to tell our employees that um, and my colleagues is this is say what's that picture about i said it, it we are building the digital america 100 years ago the chinese came and they built the physical america right and now we are building a digital america we are building networks using the internet so that your daughter and your granddaughter doesn't have to chase the claims in healthcare so the ability to personalize the the mission and the purpose and then be able to convert that into a set of beliefs is an incredibly important part of a leader's role to say why do we exist so again culture to me again both the belief and the actions is what uh, ceos are all about that drive your culture yeah there's that moment where a leader can helps the 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 task or the mission become bigger than themselves exactly yeah yeah And that 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 resonates Manoj for me as well the way you described that I appreciate it because I I do find that it becomes empty rhetoric if a CEO says these are our values but then is counter to them on their day-to-day actions because then people realize okay now I know what's most important in the company and I'll act accordingly because they want to be successful in the eyes of top leadership so what gets modeled gets done Exactly right Yeah. Yeah. So um uh, let's talk a bit further about this notion of leadership at early stage companies. Um I'm curious to get a sense from you what are the attributes uh and we can do comparisons again as you like. It may even be a bit more consistent. The attributes of your earliest leaders for first stage, you know, pre um pre-series A uh when you're getting the first leaders to join you there must be certain attributes that you look for in those yeah. individuals yeah i i would say there are probably three or four big ones that um so obviously i look for intellect number one is this person smart do they understand the space are they second i look for integrity is this someone that i trust is this someone one of the things i'm the proudest of is that every company i've been involved in and a built and sold there was not a single claim after the company got acquired they created a bucket of money to uh, take any lawsuits or claims that come in none of my companies had any of that and i tell all my seven ceos now i want to maintain that record i do not want ever anyone who exits or buys us to say hey there were things that were done that were funky 
right? So integrity is incredibly important because it takes a lifetime to build integrity. You can lose it in you know, 10 seconds. And then the third part is, um, you know, initiative. Is this person a self-starter? You know, will they, they, you know, will they not just give up? And how perseverance are, I mean, what's their level of perseverance at things? And then probably last but not the least is a communicator. Is this person able to engage and motivate people and bring them on the journey? Because at the end of the day, you're selling a dream. You're in, in the early stage, you're selling a concept. And if you're not able to articulate and communicate that, people are just not going to follow you. So I would say those are the four things, integrity, you know, initiative, intellect, and uh, communication skills. It seems like the communication piece could be one of the more challenging ones in your space, in your industry, where intellect is, is probably most highly valued or most highly rewarded, I guess. Yeah. So uh, how, how do you develop leaders to become better communicators? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question, isn't it? I mean, that's, a, by the way, not just a CEO level, that's across the board. That's one of the biggest um, roles I see. Um, uh, and I think it's a combination of things. Number one is I think truly understanding what drives that person. Uh, because everyone has their own power alley. There is a certain type of things. And I've always believed that you don't fit a person to a job, you fit a job to a person. And so once you understand what their power alley is, you then need to be able to say, okay, how do I then surround this person with other skills and capabilities that are needed to make them successful? So that's one part is really, again, goes back to it's about people. Leadership is about people. Really understanding the, the individual that you're trying to grow into a leader could be someone you know three years out of college or someone who is 30 years into it. That's number one. Number two is, I think, coaching and coaches. Um, I'm a huge believer. Um, one of the best things that happened to me early in my career when I was 25 is 3M identified me as one of the up and coming folks and they connected me to a guy called AJ Josephowitz. You probably know AJ from Austin. And he was an uh, organizational development leader and they did this 360 degree feedback with me. And we talk about opening my eyes when I read the comments of people about me and my own self-belief of who I was. So coaching, and I think coaches is an incredibly important part of it. Um, so that's the second part. And third is being able to understand what the motivations and drivers are. You know, uh, like David said just now, you know, what gets modeled gets done. It's also what gets measured uh, gets done. So really coming up with the right, understanding the motivations, coming up with the right compensation factors and compensation structures, and being able to sort of, um, you know, align it to what their power alley is. And then last but not the least, um, really assigning them with mentors, um, you know, giving them a quiet place where they can go in. Not everyone can be a Toastmasters level, you know, speaker, uh, but again, in their own right, I think they need their own time. So connecting them to mentors and buddies is the other approach that I've taken. I have a follow-up question, David, if you don't mind, because I think no, that was please. a good, good question. I'm curious, what habits have you observed that maybe separate some of the good leaders from the great leaders as you've worked with them and, and groomed them? Because habits is sort of the, the element of the, sort of the foundation where you start to see the culture play and other elements. No, it's a, it's a, it's a great question, right? And I think... Um, one of the most important habits of a great leader versus an average leader is the ability to separate signal from the noise. 
right? Uh, as a CEO or as a leader, you're always getting bombarded with so many signals from investors, customers, competitors. And um, great leaders know how to separate the signal from the noise. They know, they have a very high uh, ability to kind of separate and say, I'm gonna focus on that, I'm gonna ignore the other things. Um, that to me, I think is the single biggest thing that I've seen. Uh, the second part is I think great leaders are also very comfortable with ambiguity, right? They're able to take two opposing concepts at the same time and still move forward um, and, and, and are comfortable with the fact that I don't know uh, everything. And then last but not the least, the, they truly have this um, authenticity about them. You know, and people can tell a fake leader from a mile away. Uh, these are people who genuinely have a sense of self-awareness and presence and uh, charisma and authenticity that makes people want to engage with them and work with them and, and, and follow them. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's helpful for us to, uh, listeners to understand what they're looking for. That's good. So I'm going to play around a bit further with the entrepreneurial company setting over the past 20 years, what have you seen change in the eyes of investors when they gauge company value moving from series A to B or C? When they look at a leadership team, I got the sense that 20 plus years ago, there seemed to be less emphasis on whoever occupied the seats on the executive team. Uh, and, and my sense is that has changed over the years. Do you see it the same way or I, do I just always carry a leadership bias with me by the very nature of what I do? No, I, th I think, uh, so, so let's sort of, um, when you say investors, you know, having now tried to be an investor for uh, last eight years, I realized, first of all, that there are two different groups of investors. Um, one is the financial driven and the number driven investor. And second, that is the human and people driven investors right off the bat. Both of them want the same thing. They want great returns and big markets and all that stuff. But at a DNA level, there are two different types of investors. Those that bet on um, technologies and market spaces versus those that bet on people and teams. And uh, definitely those that bet on teams and people are the ones that um, I believe, um, A, I relate to, and B, I think they've delivered bigger uh, successes. And those that can't, I mean, you see, you know, the wheels come off, like we're seeing with people like Uber and Workday, I mean, what, uh, not Workday, the, um, uh, what's that sharing company got? Um, oh, yeah, I know, too. yeah, oh my gosh. I'm that. having a senior moment, but anyway, <laughs> so, you know, so, so, so th those, those investors that realize that it is a, a venture, uh, essentially is a human enterprise, I think are the ones that, um, I tend to kind of focus on and do business with. And um, at the end of the day, boards and investors realize that of the three things you need to build a great company, you know, people, ideas, and capital, people is the hardest thing to solve. Um, ideas, you know, the best of ideas, if they're not executed, don't matter for much. Capital is there's a lot of capital, a lot more capital available now than when we started working together, David, 20 years ago. So I think people is the secret sauce for good investors. And, and then within that, what they have started looking for is not just an individual. Uh, again, I'm, I'm kind of general overgeneralizing. There are obviously, you know, there is that maverick CEO who can do it all. But I think I've seen a distinct shift from investing in a person or a cult to investing in a core team of people. 
And I think that has been definitely be a shift is how does the core team of two or three people complement each other? Or in cases where we find a brilliant CEO, um, how do we take her or him and, and build out, is she coachable enough and is she open enough to be able to add more people around her to kind of build out what a team looks like? Something that was never done for me when I got going. I was just thrown in the water, here's a $5 million check, go make it work. And which I think is a very healthy and a very wise thing to do because you're enabling the human capital to perform at a much better level than just banking it all on one individual. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I have just seen from the early days of startups that back then, if you had a, uh, a very um, capable CEO with a great PowerPoint deck, uh, there was there was a lot of forgiveness if that CEO happened to have put the uh, IT desk uh, guy in as the CTO and yeah. you know a uh, a junior analyst in at the the marketing level and the controller had the title of CFO so you could have these C level titles of people who clearly in any sort of mature company wouldn't be anywhere close to those titles. And there was a lot of forgiveness there among yeah. um, investors. I see much less of that forgiveness now that they want to, as you say, that they weigh the whole team to assess value. Absolutely. And also, I think there is a recognition, even on the entrepreneur side, because there's more resource available. I call the journey as uh, going from PowerPoints to products to profits, mm -hmm. right? There are a lot of CEOs who can do a great job of PowerPoints, and most of them are able to do a decent job of products, converting PowerPoints to products. But there are very few who can take it from products to profits. And I think that's the other thing that the boards are realizing that um, you probably need to change horses unless you get super lucky to have the founder CEO go all the way through. And uh, I think they're doing a much better job uh, than, than some of the experiences and examples I've seen in the past. All right. So I'm going to ask you, this is our moral dilemma question. We like to pose moral dilemmas to our guests. Um, and you're going to have to take your investor head off, if you would, please, if possible. So you're back to being the entrepreneurial CEO, and you're fortunate enough to secure the Series C. And this is the big one. So now you have a lead investor who's taken a primary seat on the board. That lead investor has come in and said, you know what? I'm going to invest. However, you're going to have to get rid of your VP of marketing. Now, that VP of marketing happens to be a friend of yours. You brought her in at the earliest days of the uh, company. You have high trust in her uh, and your friends. Uh, but you've got this Series C investor who's kind of put a stake uh, in front of you to say, we can't move forward unless you fire this person. How do you uh, act on this? Yeah, a good question. In fact, not very really dissimilar with something I actually did go through. Uh, to me, I think uh, it's kind of like a layered problem how I would approach and how I approach it in the past. The first thing is I would, my antennas would go up saying, goodness, a VC who, wa who wants to come in and start telling the management team how to run the company. So right there, my antennas would go up and saying, culturally, are we even the right fit here? Mm. Because if you're coming in here to grab the steering wheel, uh, then we have a disconnect. So. Uh, I would sort of immediately start saying, well, maybe, you know, it's something I need to do more due diligence on. That's number one. And the way I would do that is by going deeper and asking why. You know, what's the basis on which you are making that assertion or putting that as a condition? Are there things that I overlooked? Are there some 
real issues of integrity or ethics or whatever that we have not, um, you know, maybe uncovered in the past and uh, really would like to understand that. That's the second thing. The third thing I would do is, now, am I the CEO or am I just the board member in this case? You're the CEO. You're the I'm founding the CEO. CEO. You've traveled. This is your baby. Yeah. And you brought in that first uh, set of believers. She was yeah. one of them. But now you've gotten the big check. This is yeah. the $100 million check versus yeah. the $1 million check. Yep, yep, yep. So, no. So, I think the first part, I would get, like I said, my antennas would go up. Second is I would like to understand, like this is seek first to understand where he is coming from or she is coming from. And then third is really kind of understand if there is a path forward and say, okay, if these are your concerns. Let's come up with a six month plan where you actually watch her execute and see whether she's able to, um, you know, address some of those weaknesses or issues, assuming those are logical challenges. And then at the end of it, if that doesn't work, I would say, then we'll give her a three month performance improvement plan and say, it's not getting it done. And so that way you have a sort of a glide path and you're being fair to both sides. I'm being fair to the investor to say, I understand your concerns. And then I'm also being fair to the employee to say, hey, here's a wisdom of someone without using the context as to something that he may be seeing that we will hit the wall if we don't fix it now. So I would kind of balance it that way. It's come up with a plan that balances both sides. You've always been and a great way, negotiator. Sorry? Uh, you've always been a great negotiator. No, but you know, at the end of the day, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for the employee. To me, sure. uh, I have this thing, David, you know, uh, I think you know this. I call these my non-negotiables in life. Anytime I get into a moral dilemma, I lean back on these three non-negotiables. And those non-negotiables are my integrity, my health, and my family. It makes it very simple when I take any moral dilemma that comes in and says, how does it impact my health? How does it impact my family? In this case, it's an issue of integrity. I'm not gonna just take the money and run. It's about being able to listen to both sides and being able to find... Go ahead, yeah, Chris. I, yeah, I have a, a question. I'm curious then from all the different leaders that you've worked with, are there some common leadership traps that you see leaders fall into frequently? Almost like you've seen it so many times, you're like, up, oh, they're going to fall right into the trap. Here they go. I'm going to have to pull them out. <laughs> what are some of those traps? Well, I'll tell you things that both I have done as well as I watch other people do and I try to be a bit of a coach. And um, one, I think, is this notion of confusing motion with movement, right? it kind of ties into the sense of separating signal from the noise. You know, the, the very incredibly important part of a good leader is to be able to say, I have finite resources, I have finite energy. How do I use that to kind of make that Zen-like move that would really move the business forward on multiple fronts? And those that are not able to separate the signal from the noise and they get into the busy work uh, are the ones that I, uh, you know, um, that's a common trap is sort of, assuming that just by putting a lot of effort, you will get better outcomes. So that's one. The second part that I've seen is that the inability to connect the dots around what I call it as focus, alignment, and follow through. There is a sequence to doing things. You've got to very clearly define what is the focus in terms of the target market, the target product, the go-to-market, and all. Then behind the focus and what markets you're not going to serve, Behind the focus, you then start aligning your team and your org structure and their beliefs and their plans. 
and then you follow through. I see a lot of people aligning and following through, but not having a real clear focus or having a focus, but no alignment and yet following through on it. I've made those mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the second trap I see them is getting into that um, lack of aligning the dots, as they call it. The third trap I see is, you know, being getting into a point of call it surrounding yourself with yes men and mm. yes women, right? And not being comfortable with people challenging you. And these are some of the things that David taught me when I was, um, you know, first time CEO is one of the things I remember he used to tell me was, you know, you always praise in public and then you challenge them in private. And uh, I think, and being able to have people, in fact, one of the things I used to do in my startup, taking some of those lessons was in my all hands, I used to go in with a crisp $50 bill and I used to say, anyone in the company who asked me the toughest and the meanest question gets that $50 bill. And you want to be able to sort of promote that environment of radical transparency in the sense of, I'm willing to learn. Tell me where I can be better. I'm going to give you money if you tell me that. Uh, it's very easy as you get to build out larger companies to start thinking you're really good, to start thinking you've made it. And uh, as long as I think you... So, so going after be it a customer or be it an employee, who's a detractor and actively engaging them and learning from them and not doing enough of that is another trap that I've seen. So playing with that notion of pressing for tough questions, CEOs sometimes can't be completely transparent with their employees. Um, and you face that in early stage companies in particular. I know I saw the challenge for you and I see it with a lot of other uh, entrepreneurial companies I've worked with over the years. Uh, how have you tried to draw the lines of being transparent and forthright with employees? Because, you know, especially engineers, they're a cynical bunch. Yeah, they yeah, can yeah. say bullshit a mile away. So how do you ensure that you're being as honest as possible with them, even though you know there could be a fragile sense of, hey, we're like three payrolls away yeah. from burning through uh, the last bit of funds. Uh, yeah, how yeah. have you tried to manage that over the years, Manoj? You know, uh, I wish I had an answer to say this is exactly how you do it. Um, you know, uh, it is not, but there are multiple ways you can get to doing it better than not, than making a hash out of it. One way is really making sure that your leadership team is well-equipped to be able to understand and communicate because it's just impossible for you as a CEO to be able to be the end-all be-all for every question that comes up. So I think there are multiple ways to driving that uh, honesty and the transparency. Number one is by ensuring that you have great leaders who are able to understand the business, the strategy, and are able to communicate and align their teams properly. So equip your leaders uh, with the right information that they need. That's number one. Number two is I think um, I used to do a lot more of these all hands session. Uh, now I think we have converted that into smaller, you know, department sessions. I think those are a lot more valuable than just all hands. So the younger Manoj would have done more all hands than now. Uh, this Manoj would say, hey, if I really enable these guys then there is a lot more dialogue and openness in what they can talk about. That's number two. Number three is also, I think, letting employees know that there are certain things that we will be as transparent about the certain things we cannot share with you. Things like salaries of people. Uh, we will know that you're gonna be in a certain band and we will tell you what the band of salaries are, 
but we cannot tell you which individual is making what. How much equity do people own? We cannot be fully transparent on that, right? And there are things that you want to know about the runway and the and the uh, you know how much cash is there in the company. I'm actually of opinion that I'm okay sharing that, but more in a one-on-one construct to help them really kind of understand that you know we will get a lot more money. And the reason we are not raising more money is we're going to get that contract that will increase the valuation by 2x. So I think it's a multiple um, stage sort of um, approach to driving the transparency. Yeah, that a uh, couple of things come to mind that really resonates with me. One sort of immediate example last year during the early stages of the pandemic, uh, one of my client companies uh, hit the wall because the business they were in just simply stopped. And so the CEO chose to take the approach of being completely open with employees, say, we're going to try to get this government PPP loan. That'll make a difference as to whether we can continue to run or whether we're going to have to take really drastic steps, starting with me uh, reducing salaries at the top level. And then we're going to have to move through. So I just want to let you know, we're trying to think through how we preserve jobs and cash all at the same time. He was just thinking out loud with employees. Uh, and they were pretty rigorous about doing employee surveys. They did one around that time and people were highly engaged and greatly yeah. appreciative. And they came out on the other side. And I'm telling you, the trust and loyalty ratcheted up big time because of that moment of absolute uh, sort of clarity, because people knew what was in it for them, because they were feeling vulnerable. And, and way, he was sharing the vulnerability too. Great example. In fact, I'll give you another example without naming the portfolio company. We went through exactly that. Okay, We realized that we didn't know which way was up. We realized that we have to make the money last not 12 months, but 18 months, because we didn't know how long this thing is going to last. And the step that we took there was, number one, it start, I always said, you know, uh, what's that saying? Uh, a dead fish sinks from the head down. Yeah. Uh, so so it, it, it starts from the top. So the first step we did was I said, okay, I'm going on zero salary. I'm going on I'm deferring everything that I get till we get out of it. Number two, all the executives are taking a deeper cut of deferrals, not cuts, but deferral salary than the rest of the employees would be. So the top 10 people, if they take, say, a 25% deferral, and the rest of the employees will take a 10% deferral. Because when you do that and you are transparent about it, you have the moral high ground to be called and considered a leader. And then more importantly, we came through it within nine months and we made them whole by before Christmas. That really built a lot of loyalty and a lot of respect because they saw that when things were down, you know, the leaders took care of us to the best extent they can. Yeah, they were in this community of sort of survivorship and, and everyone was a community citizen uh, exactly. at that point, starting with the top. Uh, One other element of what you were saying and talking about uh, the importance of reasonable transparency, and I wasn't expecting you to take the angle that you did, but I really appreciate it, is this notion of, in your early days, getting up in front of the employees assured you had a controlled message. Um, And it is an extension of trust when you assume or push for your leadership instead to be able to have that same message and that they can carry it forward. Because I can remember those early days in my career where I said, hey guys, we need to control the message. So we're going to have the CEO get in front of everyone. They hear it once. It's consistently stated in that way, because otherwise, if we let the 
managers do it, well, heck, their employee could come to and say, did you hear the CEO? Do you believe that? Well, I believe a portion of it. Here's the way I would look at it. And suddenly we have a loss of message control. So one other thing. Sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to. No, I was just going to sort of conclude that thought to say is there is this razor thin balance, it seems like, is where you want consistency of message, yet you want to ensure you uh, equip managers to um, embrace, understand, and share that message at a localized level. Yeah, earlier in my career, not in the first company that you and I were, there was another company I was with where I didn't take that approach. And one of the interesting implications of it was we had this two brilliant people and it soon became, it's this person was just a, you know, a bystander to all the stuff I was communicating. And when he got the pushback, both of them, their response was, hey, it's not me, it's those guys. So the leaders then became part of the mob, if you may, and they started throwing stones back at you by saying, because you didn't engage me, I am, it's nothing to do with me, it's these guys. And, and then you lose the whole structure of scaling and supporting each other. So that's why I think shifting it, the center of gravity down, uh, one of the things I've learned, middle management is where it is at. Mm-hmm. So much gets done in the middle management layers. Yeah, it's and a I think pin. the stronger you build, the better I think the farther you will go. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's this common statement that people um, join companies and leave managers. And mm-hmm. it's usually that first level manager that they determine if they wake up in the morning and don't trust that direct manager who's not an advocate for them and, and they don't believe what they're saying or what they intend to do, then they'll leave. Absolutely. So, so I'm with you. Let me ask you one other general question because we need to get, uh, we're get, reaching an end point. So is there another startup in you? Well, you know, um, it's, it's not another startup. So there's a significant shift in my career, right? So I've gone from being an entrepreneur to mm-hmm. being a serial entrepreneur, mm-hmm. then now being an investor. Well, you uh, don't, you skipped over the big old corporate IBM. We didn't even have a chance to get to leadership <laughs> traps for big companies, big companies. versus yeah, leadership yeah. traps for the smaller companies. If yeah, we'd had time, I, I would I'll, love to explore that. Yeah, I'll answer your question that way. I started with big companies with 3M, did two small companies that I built and sold as a small company guy, went to a big company back with IBM for seven years came out and then became, I call it a, a, an investor in other people's potential, which is a venture capitalist, which is sort of what I am right now. It's not exactly a parallel entrepreneur, but more of a parallel enabler of other people's potential. And I definitely um, will be involved. I just love innovation and people too much to not be doing anything. So I'm working actually on a very exciting project. I have um, seven companies that I've invested in so instead of doing another venture fund, I've taken some money from my own family office and created um, a direct seed fund. And next year, I'll be announcing something around this area, which I'll soon be coming to both of you for help mm. on uh, right. creating an ecosystem uh, in Austin. So yeah, I mean, I uh, I love this space. This is the only thing I know how to do, um, except how I'm going to do is going to be quite different than um, what I've done in the past. It's a new model that I'm working on. That sounds exciting. Is the best way for folks to keep track of you is to follow you on LinkedIn or is there another way? Yeah, LinkedIn probably, I'm the most active on LinkedIn, a little bit on Twitter, but LinkedIn is my favorite uh, way to stay connected. Okay, good. Yeah, I wanna make sure folks don't miss that as they look for that coming next year. 
Hey, I got uh, our closing uh, segment uh, for you, which we like to call choose your trap. So <laughs> there's basically no right answer. Uh, <laughs> let's, yeah, I'll give you a scenario, real scenario uh, that I like to pull up from, from my past or, or current uh, situations I'm working with different leaders. Uh, so you've got a, a situation here where a leader of one of, uh, one of the startups that you're investing in comes to you and asks for advice on putting her team together. She's clearly scoped out the roles, the charters that are really critical for the long-term success of the team. So we know what those are. But she says, I, I know these three great leaders. They don't really have those skill sets. They don't quite fit in those roles. Um, they would make a real impact. Do you tell her, hey, stay focused on the roles that we need to get the work done? Or do you say, go out and hire the best people and we'll just build some roles around them or some other alternative uh, that you have in mind? What's the trap? <laughs> yeah, so the, so the dilemma is that she has people that she wants to bring in, but they don't necessarily fit the role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I, again, I've always believed that um, you know you focus on putting the right person in the right role. So first, start and understand what is it that they bring to the table, and then look at what can be adjusted in the org structure to be able to put that person in. Because if that's what the CEO is saying, I need that person. I would look at by again putting people first and come back and say, okay, if you were to bring these people, how would you restructure the organization? And also, how would you, this, assuming this is early enough stage, and how would you build the buy-in of the rest of the folks who are going to be disrupted when you bring in a new member like this? So I would approach it sort of in three stages. Stage one is to have her really understand and assess, saying, have you looked at alternatives? Or is this the only thing? Stage two would be, okay, now that you think you still these are the right people, let's figure out how to restructure and re-engage the employees and the existing leaders so you bring in, and then the stage three is to say, you know, what are the other skills that are needed in order to make sure that these people, what are the metrics that you have that if this is not working out, uh, your hypothesis, how do you make sure that you're measuring the performance and making decisions six months or nine months out? Yeah, that's good. It's always a, a, a tough decision because you, you know you have certain roles and now you may have some gaps because you're bringing in certain individuals it's always a challenge, right? Yeah, I think looking at the alternatives is where I would spend the most time. Because a lot of times people, because of familiarity, they take the easy path. Saying, I yep, know yep. this is the right, right person. So this is where HR firms and consulting firms become so important. I would say, write down the job description, do a market assessment. Mm -hmm. And if the answer still is those are the people, then I would work with them. But I would not just take the easy route. I would make them sort of sweat the details. Well, and I like how you use uh, outline some of the parameters, right? Because you've got to keep it on the rails, right? So as long as you've got some measurements, you're tracking it, you're monitoring, as opposed to, yeah, let's just bring them in and see what happens. <laughs> because beer buddies make the worst business partners. <laughs> no. Well, we say that now, and this is part of the wisdom, right? In the early days of entrepreneurship, it's so common to say, literally, friends and family is what I need, because they, those could be the only people who are willing to take the leap with you. Uh, is because they happen to be friends and family, but there are big trade-offs when you approach in that family. I, I also have this uh, reaction sometimes to leaders when they're making these types of hires, Chris, as you describe them. So I, I ask them, are you hiring for expertise or are you hiring for promise? And mm -hmm. can you get away with promise uh, for this particular role? Because there are trade-offs, as Manoj, you, you indicated, because it's disruptive 
to others when they know they're not working with the expertise. They're working with someone who uh, the hiring manager saw as having this great promise who others may not see. This, by the way, is very common in early stages. Okay, mm-hmm. it happens all the time. And whenever someone comes to me and they want to start a business, I, I probe on two things. One, I tell them, go take a cold shower and if the feeling persists for three more months, come back <laughs> to me, then you're ready. Because it's one of the hardest, anyone says I'm doing it to make money, I'll tell them wrong reason to do a company. Okay, so so I dissuade them to, to get on the journey until I really know they're real. Second thing I'll tell them is, if you really want to make enemies of your best friends, I'll guarantee that in 18 months, you won't be on speaking terms with that best buddy of yours. So, and those are some of the things that I've learned going through this journey. Yeah. And, Again, I, and I, I saw you in action in that uh, journey. You're one of the most um, uh, thoughtful, passionate, brilliant uh, leaders I've run across in my career over the years. It's been such an honor to work with you. And I'm intrigued. I hope that we uh, can repeat that uh, in 20. 22. I will offer this as well. Uh, that passion showed up physically for you. I remember there were points along the way, Manoj. Uh, I think it was the first uh, company in which you were physically uh, debilitated by the stress. You remember that? Oh my God! I, you should of do. Of course, a, you were. You should do a session just on that because what you realize is adrenaline is what powers you, and stress can also be a source of adrenaline. I put on 24 pounds in my first company. And like I said, and that's where I got the realization about the non-negotiables, health, integrity, and family. So that's another area on the leadership side for early stages about you know really kind of balancing it out and understanding that at the end of the day, this is just business. Life is much bigger than this. That should be another section. And I definitely would love to track and listen to the podcast that you guys are going to be doing in the future. So congratulations on getting this done. And I'm Honored again to be asked to participate in this one. Yeah, yeah thank you, Madosh. Stay healthy. Thank you. Yes. You too. And you, my best to Sharice. Thanks again. Bye-bye. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Madosh. Okay. See you down the road. Cheers. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. Do you know a leader who could benefit from hearing about the leadership trap? Well, we hope you will share this podcast with them. And remember, give the podcast a five-star rating. Every rating helps us reach more leaders. You can find us at theleadershiptrap.org. Okay, we'll see you next time. And until then, stay out of those traps.